everybody. Welcome to another PR Masters podcast series brought to you by the Stevens Group. In case you don't already know who the Stevens Group is, we're one of the leading mergers and acquisitions firms in the PR and digital interactive space. Our special guest today is an old friend, Jim Lukashevsky, literally America's crisis guru. Jim is one of America's most visible corporate go-to people for senior executives when there is trouble in the room or on the horizon. Jim is known for his ability to help executives look at problems from a variety of sensible, constructive, and principled perspectives. Jim is an expert in managing and reducing contention, and he counteracts tough, touchy, sensitive corporate communications and institutional issues. He has spent his career counseling leaders of all types who face challenging situations that often involve conflict, controversy, community action, or activist oppositions. Jim Lukashevsky speaks annually before thousands of people, engaging a wide variety of local, statewide, national, and international organizations and associations. This also includes U.S. military services, intelligence agencies, law enforcement, chemical industries, trade and professional associations, large businesses, and of course, the PR professional associations like PRSA. Jim is an accredited member of PRSA and was inducted into its College of Fellows. Jim has written 13 books and published hundreds of articles and monographs. Wherever you study public relations on the planet Earth, you're likely to read something or see something from or by Jim Lukashevsky. And finally, before I start asking Jim my series of questions for today, and I truly look forward to our conversation, let me read a few of his copyrighted Civility and Decency Manifesto, which I will ask him to talk about during this interview. And here are some of them. Number one, when your words, deeds, or actions turn to vilification, stop. Two, when you use sarcasm to ridicule and damage, demean, dismiss, diminish, or humiliate, stop. Three, when your words are arrogant, causing needless but international pain and suffering, stop. And one more, when your words exceed the boundaries of decency, civility, and integrity, just simply stop. Choose another path. Jim Lukaszewski, welcome to PR Masters. It's a privilege and an honor to have you with us today. And how are you doing this? Hi, thank you. Hi, thank you very much. And I'm really glad to be with you and those who are with us uh, listening to this program. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for uh, being with us today. Um, I'm going to start asking you some questions about your career and the niche that you have chosen to uh, base your career on. And so my first question, Jim, is this. You know, your career has spanned many niches, and uh, I've been in and out of some of the uh, areas that you've been in, your lectures, your, uh, your discussions at PRSA, your commentaries in the, in the trade media, um, and you obviously have selected certain niches to be in. So you've worked in government, finance, consulting, and teaching. 
Jim, given your deep experience, what do you think ultimately prepared you for a career as a crisis guru? And how do you currently spend the bulk of your time? Well, a couple of things. I, I'm a kind of a late bloomer. I, um, I graduated from high school in 1960, went to college for a while. I actually went to college for a long time, on and off. Couldn't fit anything together. Um, and uh, so I was in sales and marketing and those, those, that area, just really in those, in those capacities. And then the state of Minnesota invented a university called Metropolitan State, which was for people like me who had fit, you know, you couldn't fit a degree together in a traditional institution. Uh, but they had one for people like me who had lots of credits and uh, just had to you know, focus on a specialty. And by complete accident, I, I got an internship in the office of former Governor Wendell R. Anderson here, who served in the early 70s. And that was really the turning point in my entire life. Uh, I, was, uh, I worked in the press office. I, I did, you know, I did uh, odd jobs. I, did, I started to do some writing, which I hadn't done before. Um, but I was just fascinated with government. And and because I was I was a 31-year-old intern, they called me the old guy. So I sort of started my career at that time. Uh, and uh, uh, it was as you, I stayed in government. I was hired by the governor. Uh, and I worked in the, in the government, in municipal state government for five years, left it, started my own firm with Barbara in 1978. And um, I, I, the, because of the nature of my work, um, I worked directly with the governor a lot. I mean, I was just an intern, but we had a lot of contact. One of the reasons was that I, um, uh, they, they gave me things they wouldn't give younger interns. That's why I guess they called me the old guy. And so I honestly feel the governor didn't like me. And probably my best day on the job was the day we said goodbye. But uh, in the process, I, I met many important people. Um, had a lot of contact with people who were having difficulty and problems, because that's what governors do. And um, so when I started my firm um, back in 1978, I specialized in two areas. One was executive coaching and counseling. It started as media training. Uh, I was one of the, probably the first first few who did started in the Midwest, um, but then, of course, branched out to all over the country and elsewhere. Um, but most importantly, I, got, I really was intrigued by these organizations and individuals who got into trouble, trouble that was repairable if they you know, just used their heads, so to speak. So long answer to your question, but uh, I graduated in, uh, at 32 years of age, um, started a business just shortly after that. And I, right from the very beginning of my business life, we specialized in these two areas, crisis management, which wasn't a thing at the time, actually. Uh, it was quite, you know, there'd been crisis management forever, but... But uh, it, started, it started to get some recognition, and I was among those who was writing about it and codifying different procedures and processes, um, and, uh, and the media coaching gave me entry to people with the kinds of troubles that I wound up working on. The fact is I worked in every SIC code. Um, I actually had clients, had clients in every state. Uh, it was sort of interesting. Uh, but I've been at this 42 years, so I've had some time to get things done. Oh. Forty-two years. So, given given that, uh, Jim, what impact do you feel that you personally have had on the world of issue and crisis management? Well, I, I actually, quite honestly, when I left the governor's office and started my own career, um, I really I intended to um, have an impact primarily on the practice of public relations. Um, I began publishing 
when I was in the Department of Economic Development in Minnesota in PR journals, PRSA's journals and others, and I was just astounded by the reaction to the, these little lists of to-dos that I published. Um, and so I met a lot of very senior people in the public relations field while I was still, you know, a government employee and publishing these these sorts of things. And um, uh, I also had a chance to observe very early in my career a lot of people give advice to very important people. And I, I was just curious immediately as to why why you know a particular individual would have uh, great credentials and everything, but uh, important people didn't listen to them. And so the early part of my career, I started off pretty much at the top of organizations, so I got to watch a lot of people give a lot of advice. And uh, the, 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 I had a book. I published a book in 2008 called "Why Should the Boss Listen to You," um, and uh, it was really based on that. So it's really not a communications book; it's a business book, but it has to do with having impact and access uh, and influence on people in positions of power. So, uh, and, and most of them were, frankly, screwing up, and largely, you know, to their own their own their own doing. But so that was really what I was targeting to do, stay in the important space, uh, deal with problems that mattered and people that mattered. Um, and I, I, for some reason, um, I just happened to, to keep that going. Uh, at my stage of the game, the most common, common question I'm asked, especially by students and younger practitioners is, Jim, what was your plan? How did you get this done? And I said, plan? plan? Uh, <laughs> it's a four-letter word. Um and I didn't have much of a plan. I, I was in the right place at the wrong time, the wrong place at the right time, uh, a bunch of luck. Um, and and uh, the biggest luck I had was, of course, I went into business with uh, my wife, Barbara, at the very beginning. And uh, uh, she really ran the business and knew everybody. Uh, and it really, it, it really helped me stay focused on building this sort of unique career that I've had all these years. Well, my question to you then, since you've been doing this for 42 years, Jim, is uh, what made you wince like 42 years ago when you saw how various executives and corporations and government agencies and what have you uh, were handling uh, what we, I guess, still call uh, crises? Uh, what made you wince then? How do you think you have changed the approach to crisis management and, and, and in terms of what you have learned over the years and obviously what your uh, knowledge and experience have uh, led you to. How, is it, how has that changed? What, do you wince as much these well, days? I think if, um, if somebody you know, you know, writes about my life, they'll, they'll maybe know more about it than I really do. Uh, but I think what I, I developed, a, a, I think, a really difficult style to work with. Um, and by, what I mean by that is I have, I have over the years looked and looked at, watched people make mistakes, do silly things, uh, and sometimes hurt people or animals or living systems. And um, I just I, I, I watched and learned from a lot of the people who gave great advice um, uh, over time. And I wrote things down. Um, I, I actually kept a log uh, from the very beginning of my career because I, I worked for a very wise person who said when I was going into public relations, he said, well, what do you know how to do that somebody wants to buy? And I said, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, and 
So I began, he, he, he said, well, here's what I do. And this guy was an investment person, uh, venture capitalist, and just took a shine to me. Um, he said, I write this, I, I answer five questions every day. Uh, so not, sometimes it's not just one, but what I just, I keep track of what I learn every day. Here's what he did. It was a great system. Um, uh, he just asked himself five questions. What was the most important thing you learned today? What was the most interesting thing you learned today? What do you know now that you didn't know at nine o'clock this morning? What questions came up today that you have to find answers to or for yourself or others? And finally, you know, what are you going to do differently tomorrow based on what you learned today? I have these logs. If you if you work for me, I make you keep a log. It sits on my desk. I talk to you about it every day. Um, and this is how I learn, but it's also how I learn what other people need to learn. Um, and if you don't want to do that, well, you don't work with me. <laughs> but what's come, uh, what has come out of this practice is you, 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 you open the program with a list, a part of a list that I've done. I'm actually this year going to publish probably 25 manifestos on various topics, just like the one that you read from. But that's what I try to do. The biggest problem I see, frankly, in managing crisis is it's so complicated and so emotional. And important people make mistakes because they're, they're you know they're adversely affected by what's going to happen. And um, I, I learned things like you know um, we just saw the, the 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 CEO of Boeing go. That shouldn't surprise anybody. If you kill 300 people, you're not likely to keep a job. Um, uh, so quite often uh, when I'm dealing with people who have serious problems, one of their first questions of me is, "Are you going to survive?" And my answer, am I going to survive? And my answer generally is, you know, it's an open question. But at this, you know, at this point in time, you know, I, I would say you're going to we're going to have to plan for succession along with solve, solving problems. This is not good news for people. And the reason I'm tough to work with is because I believe so strongly in candor, which I define as truth with an attitude delivered right now. So, you know. Uh, when people call me, I actually have a list of questions called Seeking Forgiveness. It's nine questions. I send it to them right away, and I say, well, where are you on the, on this, in the scheme of nine questions in resolving your problems? And if they say, well, we haven't started yet, um, and Jim, frankly, you know, nine things, you know, we've got a crisis going on, and we can't do nine things. I say, but, but let's, let's talk about these nine things. I'll just read three or four of them here. Candor, I just talked about. Outward recognition through promptly verbalized public acknowledgement. No. Extreme empathy and apology. No. Explain what happened. Explanation. Um, you know, contrition, consultation, commitment, and restitution. Now, every one of these steps is what's going to resolve your problem. You may not like to do these steps, but frankly, until you do these steps, it's not going to. You're not going to make progress. So they say goodbye generally. They hear this, okay? <laughs> All right. Eleven months later, another guy calls me. Who the last guy they called me has been fired. Uh, he, this is the new guy. And my first question is, you know, where are you in the nine steps? And they'll say, well, we talked to a lot of people. We hired a firm, but we didn't like what they're doing, uh, or the person that you know, is working with us. Um, but we're like nowhere on the on the nine steps. I said I'll say the same thing to you that I said to the gentleman preceding you. Uh, 
You have to. This is this is the, this is the answer to your issue. You do. You start all of these things today, in the morning, and you're going to be better the day after tomorrow and better the day after that. And the, the response at that point is usually, "Well, Jim, you know, nine steps. What if we did three, five, and seven and see how it goes?" My answer is, "Call me when you're ready." Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, my career is really funny. I'm never the first person hired because it's too hard. I'm usually the third or fourth person hired when when the the the, the perpetrators, as I often refer to them, um, you know, realize that you know this is what they have to do, uh, and they, then they then they sort of they'll dig in sometimes, sometimes they don't. But um, I'm not in this to to it for myself. I'm in it because these people have uh, they work for important institutions or or, or large businesses or large agencies. And they, they have to solve their problems. And by and large, as I mentioned, these are serious problems, and they're likely not going to be there when this list is completed, interestingly enough. Um, so it's a difference in my environment I work in. Pretty no-nonsense. So, Jim, my, my next question is, uh, you know, dur- during the years that I've been in public relations and had, you know, my own uh, agency for a number of years, uh, you know, the term uh, crisis management plan was always, uh, you know, kicked around, uh, and that the way to, you know, to anticipate and resolve any subsequent issues that come up, uh, you needed to put in place a crisis management plan. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, is is is, is that is that mantra still uh, does it still apply currently to corporations who, who should be able to anticipate crises that they have? And those who well, have crisis it's, management it's plans, it sounds to me, Jim, that they don't really follow them sometimes. Uh, well, you know, every year somebody does a study of how many of the Fortune 500 companies have crisis plans for their key vulnerabilities. And it's a very low percentage, probably one out of every four Fortune company has some a plan. And, and those uh-huh. plans generally are, the, are those that, is, that are required by government uh, action, agency, laws, rules, and regulations. Um, uh, you know, we, we've graduated uh, two generations of managers who believe that they are superhuman. Um, they believe that they can leave tall buildings, that they can solve any particular problem. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is a large group of people um, who believe that they have the skills necessary to solve any problem, anytime, anywhere. Um the the issue in in management code in management training these days is one that is is very problematic from our perspective as crisis managers. So this is the this is a mantra for my in my judgment only for PR people and crisis managers. Um, we, we have this 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 uh, superhuman uh, behavior and belief. It's the number one reason, frankly. Uh, why these people, these really smart people, get into trouble? They believe that they are superhuman, that they can do these things, and they find out that they can't, and often it, 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 it interrupts their career. But it's, it's sort of a strange answer. But no matter how much we talk about this, um, this is this is what we're sort of up against as we promote uh, and work on trying to get more companies ready for the problems that we know they're going to face. So I think one of the stigmas that I think uh, 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 people in public relations have always had uh, was that uh, their their boss
bosses would often say no comment, no comment when uh, a, a, a crisis uh, erupts. Um, could you talk about the so-called no comment uh, uh, description of how some companies have handled uh, crises in the past and how that has changed? Well, let me start in a different place but answer your question. What I advocate is that we we have to understand, we have to rethink uh, how we assist leaders in these crisis situations. And uh, we tend to start uh, in a sense where you're talking about. The reason we're not not listening to that much is because we're always talking about the news media. We're always talking about reporters. And, you know, it's a funny thing about staff functions. Um, most staff functions, you know, all, well, all staff functions exist to help the people who run the place do a better job. But two of the staff functions uh, have respect problems with management. HR is one, and PR is the other. Uh, and the, here's the problem. If, if they're listening to an accountant, even if they're conversant with mathematics, uh, as most every age, uh, operating person is, um, they still have to listen to this accountant because they don't know all the rules and all the rest of it, okay? Um, if they talk to their security people, they have to listen because they're not experts in security. You know, if there's any one of a number of other staff functions, they have to listen to the law department, for example. They have to listen to. But when we're talking to leaders, um, you know, they're not listening to us. They're arguing with us in their brain. I mean, I, when, I, when I'm working with our colleagues, I ask this question, okay? Um, how many of you work for people who think they are bad communicators? And it gets a big laugh because, because, you know, these people who run things believe that the reason they got the job is because they're good communicators. The reason that they're, you know, they're hired for an organization is because they're really a great boon to that organization. And so the result is they don't listen to our advice, you know, until something so serious happens that they're forced to listen. Um, and, and this has caused uh, this causes a sense of you know this omnipotence really. Uh, actually, there's one there was an article in HR HBR just last year about omnipotence being the number one cause of executive mistakes and misbehavior. Um, and um, so so you know we're, we we're, we're, we're there's a pattern here that we have to overcome. And so what I what I advise and when I coach people I say especially our own colleagues. It's, look, you have to rethink how you operate. You have to start where the business person and the problem is, not where the media are or these other things. Because, you know, everyone we look for, we work for, thinks they're better than we are at being communicators. So you don't have the right kind of, you just don't, you, you know, you're starting at a different place, and then you, therefore you're never going to end up at the same place together at the same time until someone like me comes along and you've tried everything but what you're supposed to do. Long answer, but but the, the real issue here is is not so much understanding what the media is doing; it's understanding what the business is doing, what's happening to the business person or leader you're working with, and where they are in their their problem resolution, and start there. Does that make any sense? Yes, it certainly does. It certainly does, Jim. Yeah, maybe maybe sometimes uh, the focus is maybe too much on media as opposed to all other aspects of the business itself. I mean, the, the business person, the business person really is designed, is, is operating to operate the business and recover the business. And 
you know, these aren't these aren't these aren't dumb people. Uh, but they're, they're, the real problem is they're frightened. They're they're really uh, scared to death of what's happening because they can't control it, even though they say they can, believe they can, and all the rest of that. They can't. We know it. But our job has to be to help them understand how they get to where they are, to where they, from where they are in this problem, to where they have to be. And uh, one of the issues with our such a uh, such a focus on the media is that you know it, it's something, as I say, that that the bosses believe they already know. They believe they already know public relations. You know, one of the when, even with very senior PR people, they'll complain. You know, this guy doesn't understand PR. Well, he shouldn't have to. He needs to find out or she needs to find out what the steps are, the management steps are to get this situation resolved. And once you can make suggestions about that, that aspect of the business, it means you have to learn things about the business. You know, we talk about knowing the business plan and the rest of it, but knowing about trouble is what you have to know about. Uh, one of the first, you know, we have college degrees in, in crisis management these days, and <laughs> People call me and say, well, I can't get a job with this because I don't have any experience. Uh, you know, they, they, they literally don't have any crisis experience. So I actually published a document uh, it's on my website um, about how to get experience uh, in crisis if you want to go into the field. And then it involves things like, you know, working for the Red Cross and, uh, rescue stuff. If you're in the military, you got to, you're ahead of the game because your life is a crisis almost every day. Um, but there are simple, sensible, positive things you can do to gain the experience you need to get access to doing this. It is really the number one destination for most people who want to PR right now. That's very, very interesting. So, uh, Jim, um, do, you, do PR agencies do a good job generally of handling client crises? Uh, you see, do they do a good job? Um, yes. Do PR, do PR agencies do a good job of handling client crises? I think, you know, certainly it, it, it's, it's some do and some don't. I think that the, um, I think it's really some do and some can't, I should probably the way I should say it. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're a peculiar profession in that we, we you know, I, one thing I love about public relations is that, you know, everything you've done in your life, at some point in time in your career, we'll, you'll find useful. And, you know, with, I think we're the only profession that gets to make up Every day, about ninety percent of what we do, you know, wouldn't be you wouldn't go to a brain surgeon who says, "Well, I've done my first day on the job. Let's take a shot at it here." Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and we act this way. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Um, the, the, one of the major problems with the agencies is that they overstate what they know how to do. They'll 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 they'll, they'll, they'll put a proposal out that says, "Well, we haven't done this exactly. Uh, we've done something like it." Blah blah blah. That you know, they can get hired sometimes, but if you find out almost immediately that you haven't done it, you're not going to stay hired. Um, this takes it really takes having been in the fire uh, and, and and really learned in essence the hard way um, what has to happen. And one of the things you learn is that you have to look at these things from a management perspective first, and then that follows. Um, uh, understanding what the, that manager is capable of accomplishing, and what you can help, what how your advice can help them get that done. And what are the I didn't worst ask you mistakes question, that? Oh, I'm sorry. 
That's it. No, I, 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 that corporate. What are the worst mistakes, Jim, that corporations and government make in handling crises? Well, um, it really depends on the relationship between the people who will help in a crisis and the person who needs help in the crisis. And I, I would say that, that you know, the, the more hands-on circumstances that an advisor has had in his or her career, the more likely they are to gravitate toward, toward what I'm talking about, which is this notion that, you know, what management needs and wants first uh, is what has to happen first. And all these other things will happen uh, as a result, whether it's media relations, whether it's employee relations, whether it's victim management. You know, if you if you think about crises, you have to think about how do we resolve crises. My my strategy really contains my general strategy for handling crisis is very simple. There's five parts. They're easy. One, stop the production of victims. And let me give you my definition of crisis in the first place. That'll help you. Okay. I define a crisis as a people as a people stopping, show stopping, product stopping, reputationally redefining event that creates victims and or uh, explosive visibility. The operative word here is victims, um, because it is victims who drive, wrote a book about this too uh, in 2013. Uh, uh, We we actually spend all of our time talking about the media, but the people who are driving what's going on in the media are the victims of what's happening. We have to know a lot about that, but more than that, we have to see to it that the very first thing the client does in a crisis situation is stop the production of victims. And, you know, probably the greatest example of that was the, you know, the pipe that, that uh, burst in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we watched thousands of gallons, millions of gallons of oil, you know, uh, uh, be spewed into the Gulf at 5,000 feet underwater. Um, this, is a, this, is the, this is the trifecta of, of crises, because crises involve victims, which who can be people, animals, or living systems, and this one nailed them all. So the issue really is, you know, the, the damage is not going to stop to that bay until somebody closed that pipe. So, so rule one is stop the production of victims. The second step is to care for the victims themselves. If you don't do that, who do they go to? They go to the press or they go to their lawyers or they go to their neighbors or they go to their legislators. So those are the first most important steps. Stop the production of victims and then care for those victims. Then third, you know, really is to begin to apply what's necessary to remediate the damage being done um, and notifying those who need to be notified. Um, fourth is to, to uh, again, work with what I, what I call sort of the, the, um, the anointed and self-appointed. That includes the media, all the other voices we deal with today in social media. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's four powerful steps right there. Um, and again, if you start them all at, at, at the earliest possible time, then you know you're going to be in a better shape to resolve the issues. But of course, the biggest complaint about crisis response is always, why did you wait so long to do things? And the reason they waited so long was because they, even if they had a plan, they you know, the bosses all huddle in a room somewhere, and we're not allowed in. No one's allowed in. And they sort of start to figure out from scratch what they're going to be doing and why are they doing this? Because they're scared to death 
there's you know they're all of their careers are on the line. Lots there's going to be lots of other fallouts from these things. And you know if we don't understand that at the very beginning and talk about it at the very beginning, um, we're going to you're just going to you're going to go through public relations people until you find somebody who finally strikes a chord and can get your attention as a leader or manager about what actually has to happen. So, but but it's still the, the, the thing we really have to put the real priorities first, and victims come first because they're going to be around the entire time that this thing is going on, and for perhaps for their own lifetime afterwards. This makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Jim. Gosh, and coming from you, even more so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk a lot, talk a little bit about public relations itself, Jim. You you've been in sure. and around public relations for many years. Um, and obviously, uh, much of what you do is, is w- within the parameters of the practice of public relations. Uh, as somebody who's been in it as long as you have, uh, I mean that positively. <laughs> how do you feel that public relations has changed? How, how do you how do you see public relations? Well, here again, um, public relations, in my judgment, has remained fundamentally the same uh, all these years. We got technologies. We've got, you know, my, I, I started at the governor's office from working out of file drawers because we send manual typewriters, that sort of thing. Um, I asked people what a selectric is, and you know, the selectric was a really fancy IBM typewriter. But uh, you know, that's generations ago they stopped using it, and we went to motor processors and computers. Tech, the technologies that we use have changed. The speed at which we communicate has changed. Uh, and those sorts of things, but the fundamental practices of public relations vary very little from when I first got in the business. Uh, we, we, we codified a lot of things. I spent much of my career doing that, um, publishing these lists of things that, that, that help people get the gist of what they need to know very quickly, that sort of thing. But, you know, if you, if you really, if you've been around as long as you and I have, you really think about it. Um, you know, what has changed in public relations? Um, we've got, now we've got, you know, 24-hour networks, and we've got all these, these collateral things. But the fundamental tools we use and the fundamental techniques we use have changed very little over time. And I think this is something that, that we have to realize as practitioners. Uh, if, if you've been running something for uh, even just a year, and you have public relations advice, you're going to quickly learn that there are probably maybe, what, 14 tricks we have, so to speak, and that whatever the problem comes up, there's these methodologies or strategies, you want to call them that, you know, are picked from the list and mixed and matched and that sort of thing. But it's sort of the same thing over and over again. Um, so I, I, we have to ask a question back because you and I have been, been around a long time. What, from your perspective, has changed? Interesting. Interesting. So given that, Jim, what do you think are the most uh, significant concerns that uh, the public relations profession is facing? Is um, it relevant? Think, is it access? I'm sorry, say again? Is it relevance? Is it access? Yes. It's four things. It's relevance, access, impact, you know, uh, and influence. Um we, we have to spend more time um, building our relationship with the people who run things. Because the fact is we're, we are a staff function, and staff functions like to act and know a lot and can do a lot, but 
than anything. I mean, I have to laugh because um, uh, I, I always ask people, fellow practitioners, how many of you uh, have never been friends with math, okay? And I raise my hand right away because I'm one of them, okay? Uh, I look at for me. I, I married a girl, a Swedish girl, who could add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and I could focus on my practice instead of that stuff. And, you know, then I pause. I wait. And, and, and I have my hand is up, right? Well, slowly, this is true of journalists, by the way, uh, slowly people raise their hand. And, you know, after about oh, 15 seconds, about 75% of the audience has got their hands up, okay? Here's the problem. Everybody we work for can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And this is so interesting. When you think about the things we want to do, get done, but we can't, we can't relate on some very basic levels that are really important to the people we're serving. So that has an influence on our relationship with these people. That's my point. Um, I actually, uh, one of the things I, I wrote, a book, I mentioned this book called Why Should the Boss Listen to You? Uh, the ninth chapter in that book is about how you give advice. And as I analyzed hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands, but hundreds certainly of people who were brought in to give advice to folks who needed it, I sort of distilled a pattern that I discerned for what they were doing. And I divided it in this in this uh, process into six parts. And it, was, it just take very little minute to explain. I call it the three-minute drill. And the six parts are these. When you're giving advice, you want to give it in a structured format that the person you're giving it to understands what you're doing. So, and it's, it's, it's done by time, okay? So the first step of the six is very simple. The first step is what I call introduction. Tell them why you're talking to them. For some reason, we arrogant believe, arrogantly believe that, you know, we talked about this problem yesterday afternoon, and now it's the following day. I walk in the office for this person, and I start right off, jibber-jabbering about whatever that problem was, right? Problem is that the person who's worse as a manager, as a leader, has a different day than we do. This person spends their entire day in meetings, listening to presentations, making decisions, absorbing information. Now, we walk in and, bam, we're talking about something that happened yesterday. We have to give this person time to catch up with us. Uh, so I believe in introducing what, what, is, what, what are we going to talk about. 60 words, okay, 60 words, which is just under about 30 seconds speaking time. The second element in your presentation, also 60 words, is what I call the, the uh, uh, explanation. In other words, why are we talking about what's, why is it important, why is it urgent, why is it, uh, uh, why is it necessary for us to talk about it? But it's, it's sort of the why of things instead of the what of things. The third step is what I call the goal step, G-O-A-L. You know, if you ever work with somebody who's in a position of authority, they don't want to hear a lot of talk about something. They expect an answer on the spot. Remember I talked about candor? Well, you know, you have, you have to kind of give the punchline, you know, a minute into your presentation. Because if you don't, they're not listening anymore. They're tapping their foot on the floor, looking at their phone. So, you know, you have to kind of give away your punchline. Um, early. Now, what I've learned over the years is that if these people are going to say no, they're going to say no at the earliest possible time. So why make a 25-minute presentation when you know they're going to say no? You know, let them get the no out of their mouths in the first two minutes, and you'll save everybody a lot of time and get a lot more respect, believe me. But 
Okay, so that's that's also 60 words. So now you get to step four, which is, I call this the money step. And this is a crucial, crucial thing. It's options. The thing that we do uh, when we are public relations people, and maybe a couple other functions do the same, we settle on what the course of action should be, and then that's what we sell. But we're forgetting that the job of the manager and leader is to make the decisions. Our job is to contribute to that effort. So I advocate that when you get to the action and voice portion of your presentation, you're going to give him three options, or her three options. Here they are. Doing nothing. Okay? Yes, doing nothing. Nothing is a viable strategic choice. We have to talk about it. If you don't talk about it, the lawyers will, and you'll do nothing. Or maybe the boss will, and you'll still do nothing. We know, unlike any other staff advisor, what the cost of doing nothing is going to be. And so we want to be able to speak for that ourselves. I call it the 0% solution. The second option is doing something. I call that the 100% solution, just doing something. And the third option is doing something more. Again, very sensible. Three options. It's, it's a small number, makes it a powerful communication strategy for you, and it's, it's time limited. You get a whole 150 words to spread to talk about the three options. 150 words is approximately a minute's speaking time. And then if you follow the strategy, by the way, this will change your life. But when you follow this strategy, two things are going to happen. Step four is step five, rather, is going to be a question from your boss. You have to be ready. Well, it actually could be two questions. The first question would be, well, Jim, you've given me three options. If you were me, of course, without my stock options, my vacation, the rest of it, but if you were me, which one would you choose? I can't tell you how many times I've watched good options be shared, and then the person says, the advisor says, gee, that's a great question, boss. I have to think about that. Don't think about it, okay? Step five is make a recommendation. That's what they're paying you for. Choose one. And then step six, that's, again, it's another 60 words. And then the step six is justification. He's going to ask you, well, why step two over steps one and three, Jim? Okay? Be ready. Be ready. Mm-hmm. So you know, what happens is when you do this, he, he or she is empowered to make a choice. It could be from your three choices. It may be from some of this. But here's the value of this. Because you've gone to the trouble of helping this person look at three different possibilities, you've done something for them personally that no one else, no other staff function is going to do. And they like this. This is important to them. You get to know them better. Okay. But here's the punchline for this whole story. You know, the, the reason we want to be a consultant to these people is not so that they take our advice every single time. They're not going to do that. It's to be in the room when the real decisions get made. That's where the learning is. So, you know, when you think about this strategy of options, you have two great benefits, okay? We're the proponents of the silver bullet. That's kind of how we're looked upon. The silver bullet guy, right? Well, here's the problem with the silver bullet. If they don't like your response, not only do they ignore you, they don't invite you to the meetings anymore. You're just out of it, okay? What I love about my work and the way it's done and the people who follow this strategy is that it doesn't matter 
whether they take your advice, well, it matters. But it doesn't matter if they take your advice. You're in the room. You're invited early. They remember what you say. They quote you to others. They quote you to you, as a matter of fact. Um, it, this is a powerful way of looking at putting yourself in the place where the manager is and having this connection I talked about, this impact, this you know, access, and the, the influence that we all seem to want to have. Well, Jim, is, is this good advice for the corporate communications officer in terms of uh, his or her relationship with the CEO? Yes, of course. I mean, we, we, most, of the, most, most of the staff, there's so much competition among staff functions anyway uh, because we have no power. <laughs> we don't buy anything, sell anything, do anything, except talk probably or write reports. Um, so this is a way to be powerfully unique. And I'm, I'm telling you, when you have to think of, no matter what the situation is, whatever, whatever the question is, you get in the habit of thinking of three options for helping others. People are going to respect you more. They're going to call you earlier. They're going to ask why you're not in the meeting. Uh, because you, you, could always, you could always count on Mary for some, you know, some thinking, uh, whether it's inside the box or outside the box, some, some extra thinking on my behalf. So the boss talking. So you know, we're in it. This is the hardest part of public relations, and that is we love what we do so much. We keep talking about it all the time, but we have to keep talking about and focusing on what that important person needs to have to make the decisions they're going to have to face. It's a it's a really different way of thinking about how things move ahead. Um, I'm always in it for them. I'm never in it for me. I talk like I am, but but basically, if you're in the receiving end of what I'm talking about, I mean, people tell me this. They, they write to me I, uh, about these things that say, you know, if you hadn't mentioned that second technique, I wouldn't have thought of, you know, step four, some things like that. Um, and, you know, it has its risks, I'm telling you. When you start doing this routinely, um, the boss is going to ask some of the other advisors, how don't you think like Mary thinks? You know what? She always comes up with two or three things I can think about. You always go always come up with one. But listen, that's the position you want to have. That's the position you really want to have. That's what I mean by access, influence, uh, and impact. And we got to work on it. It's what we do every day. But the payoff is so big and so satisfying, okay? Um, but, but I'm going to finish the thought about the silver bullet. It's much easier to think of three different increments of activity to, to take a step ahead that to try what we often do is to scope out an entire response when we're not qualified to do that. None of us are qualified to do this because we don't run anything. You know, only the person who runs it knows all this stuff. So our job is made a lot easier if we simply focus on what the next step is. You know, sometimes this next step is as simple as asking a question like, you know, well, have you called the guy whose family you injured? It's amazing to me how many people haven't done that or assigned somebody to do it. The simplest things can get you to the next step and to have positive results in the time, in, in, in spite of desperate situations. Just making sense? That's great advice. That really is for all of us. Uh, Jim, um, I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions, and I really thank you for your, your insight and your, your experience and your knowledge. Uh, I think what you are providing is a tremendous value to all of our listeners in the public relations industries. And I thank you so much for being our guest today. Just a couple more questions. 
One is, what, what do you feel is the biggest challenge facing the public relations profession today? It is relevance. Um, I mentioned in the previous question a little bit. Um, it is relevance. We're, you know, we're suffering the same thing journalism is suffering. There are so many sources of information out there. Most of it, you know, made up, fouled up, screwed up, but it's there and it's available and people believe it. And so we're, we are losing this sense of relevance, I think, to solving problems and to being those that get called in early uh, as opposed to being called in, you know, all the time. Uh, I happen to love that kind of work. Um, I know that the moment I'm hired, I'm going to be fired pretty quickly, uh, but we're going to get some serious stuff done. So I think relevance is the thing you have to think about. And what concerns me is the media, because of the, the current national leadership, has been so bruised and battered and beaten down that they, they've lost their effectiveness in helping us keep this republic moving forward. We have to help them be better at what they do. That is a responsibility we know because most of us come from journalism. We've just got to help this get done. It is an enormous challenge in the current environment. Jim, how do you want to be remembered? Well, it's a, you know, it's a funny thing. I, like I said to you, I'm really, I, I don't do this for myself. So um, I, I guess what I'd like to be, what I like to be, the, the, what I provide is simple, sensible, constructive, helpful, positive advice to people, which they are free to act upon or not as they choose. Um, and some of it's pretty hard to take because of this, this, this penchant I have for the, getting the things done promptly, properly, uh, and honestly. Uh, and that's what I want to be remembered for. All right, Jim. Jim Lukashevsky, uh, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today on the PR Masters podcast series. And on behalf of our listeners, um, I thank you for joining us today and sharing your views with us. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you, Jim, and I thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, my friend. And thank you all for tuning into another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. Until next time, I'm Arch Stevens, wishing you and every one of you the very, very best. Thanks a lot.